Welcome to Engaging Culture, a podcast presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm Brian Kiley. On this episode, Pastor Lanton and I are joined by Bridgeway's Director of Care and Compassion, Bishop Parnell Lovelace, and we'll be talking about the recent ruling in the Stefan Clark case. Stefan Clark was a young, unarmed black man who was killed by police in Sacramento in 2018. Just last weekend, the Sacramento District Attorney announced that the officers involved in the shooting will not face criminal charges. We'll talk about our own responses to this ruling, how Christians can be voices for peace, unity, and justice in the midst of a trying time for our region. All of that on this episode of Engaging Culture. All right, welcome to season two, episode 21 of the Engaging Culture Podcast. I am Brian Kiley, joined as always by Pastor Lance Hahn. Lance, hello. Hello, Pastor Brian Kiley. Uh, I'm actually really looking forward into getting into this. Um, and I have to say that no matter what prep we do, I feel like it's moving so fast. I still feel a little bit lost, there but is, I'm very excited. We are recording. It is right now 11.01 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, and... The Attorney General of the State of California is set to begin a press conference any minute with his findings in this case. Wow. So this is a rapidly developing story, obviously. We are also joined by Bishop Parnell Lovelace. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Pastor Brian. It's always a joy to be with you and Pastor Lance to share on these matters and to uh, you know just explore what God wants to do through us and with us in our community. Yep. This is, uh, obviously, there is a lot going on. There's a lot of emotion. What is taking place is a big deal. Uh, a phrase, Lance, that you have begun to use to describe something else, or to describe our response to different issues, is you've talked about the need for calm wisdom. And I think that that sort of can be helpful in even framing our discussion today to say that as we talk about these issues, we don't want to we don't want to brush anything aside. We don't want to be inflammatory. We don't want to simplify issues. Uh, we want to speak with a measure of calm, uh, but with that, have a measure of wisdom where we can talk through issues and and sort of let them be what they are and sort of grapple with the complex questions they raise while at the same time trying to be productive, right? Well, I think that I think that the heart of what this podcast seeks to do is to try to look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ, and it's kind of how I figure he is. He seemed kind of unflappable, right? Mm-hmm. So he would come walk through. People were always trying to engage him in debate. They were trying to get him to take sides. They were trying to get him to um, get caught up in the agitation. And I feel like he got he never got rattled. He knew who he was. He knew who his father was. He knew what he was supposed to do. And because of that, things didn't catch him off guard. And even if they did, his demeanor was so settled. There was such a calm wisdom about him that he could even take it on the fly, receive it in, process it through without becoming unnecessarily agitating. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is an agitator. Um, But he did so purposefully, and he did so in order to bring about better peace and so I believe that he was a peaceful agitator. Um, but I'm just saying that that all the the anxiety-driven, reactionary conversations, I don't believe get us anywhere helpful. Right. Yeah. I understand why people react that way. Um, I understand why I react that way. Sometimes that just doesn't make it right. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what I believe that we're trying to do is bring to this conversation – uh, yes. Are we going to bring up things that can be inflammatory? Absolutely. Are we going to bring up controversy? Yes, we are. But the spirit in which we do it and our motivation to what we're driving towards 
needs to be in alignment more with heaven than it does personal agenda or on earth. Yep. Amen. Well said. So for, for our listeners who might not be familiar with everything that's going on, it was, it was about a year ago, March 18th of 2018, I believe is the exact date, uh, a young man by the name of Stefan Clark was shot by police in Sacramento in his uh, grandmother's backyard, I believe it was. Uh, Pastor Parnell, for those who didn't hear about the story when it happened or who are a little bit fuzzy on some of the details, can you review kind of a little bit of what was it that took place and then what happened in our community in the aftermath of the shooting? Sure. It was reported that uh, there was a young man, a black male, who was uh, going through the neighborhood and was breaking out windows of vehicles within the neighborhood. And they, whoever made the report gave a description. The police responded to the area, uh, looking and observing that there had been some vehicles that had been vandalized. Uh, they stopped at a couple of the neighbors' homes and did brief interview. And in the process of that, it was observed by a sheriff helicopter that there was a young man who was running and hiding within the neighborhood. And it was observed going into various backyards and subsequently ended up in a backyard that was identified as later his grandmother's house. And uh, it was stated that he had attempted to enter in the house. Uh, his grandmother and another relative were in the house. But at that time, the two police officers uh, were on foot pursuit. Uh, they came down the side of the house, uh, down the side walkway, observed that there was someone there in the back of the home and uh, reportedly had asked them to put his hands up and what have you, but there's que it's questionable still on all of the details in regards to what took place between the officer and Stefan. But bottom line, uh, he was shot. He was killed instantly. And uh, there's debate on whether it was seven bullets or eight bullets, but it is agreeable that there were over 20 rounds uh, that took place that were shot, uh, ammunition that was discharged mm -hmm. at the time. As a result of that, there was quite a bit of reaction that took place within the community that is systemic to not only our particular region, but also nationally of the concern uh, that there are unarmed black men that are killed by the police. And uh, it was later confirmed that uh, he, Stefan, was holding a cell phone mm -hmm. and it was not a gun. This sparked great uh, outrage from the community that, again, I state as being systemic based upon uh, myself being in this region all of my life. I can go all the way back to the 70s and tell of specific instances in which uh, there were unarmed black men all the way up to this time that mm -hmm. have had their lives taken mm -hmm. uh, in the course of a foot pursuit. Mm -hmm. and. As a result of that, I think the community got to a place where they said enough's enough, and there began to be uh, a lot of open protests. As you know, they uh, they blocked the Kings yep. game there at the arena uh, nearly a year ago. There was protesting in the street by various organizations, not merely just one. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has continued up until this time. Now with the announcement from the DA, it has now 
peeled back the wounds that took place over a year ago. Now this is really now began to spark more of a concern and more of an outrage. Right. Now, there has been a lot of conversation amongst faith leaders, civic leaders, all sorts of leaders in the community, and you've been a part of a lot of those conversations, not only in how to respond to the initial, uh, the tragic shooting when it took place, but even in the lead up to the DA's announcement. Can you tell us a little bit about what's kind of gone on in the city in terms of conversations between faith leaders, civic leaders, and others to try to sort of prepare the city for what's going on and to try to help us move forward? What everyone began to realize immediately after the shooting was that the community was traumatized, the community as a whole, but particularly members of the African-American community uh, were experiencing not only the, the traumatic event of Stefan's death, but again, uh, experiencing the traumatic events that takes place anytime there is a tragic death within the community mm-hmm. and what is, in many people's minds, considered to be unjustifiable. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that was wonderful to watch in the midst of this tragedy was to see the faith community, uh, leaders of the faith community and civic leaders come together in partnership to address Specifically that, how do we care for the family, Mm -hmm. which certainly would be traumatized over the loss of their loved one, which, by the way, this was the second uh, son uh, that was taken tragically by gun violence within Mm -hmm. the family. Mm -hmm. And so how do we care for the family? How do we address the trauma that they are experiencing? But then how also, uh, the question arose, how do we address the trauma that is found within the community? As a whole. Right. And so these organizations, these uh, leaders began to hold forums. They began to hold private meetings uh, with both the police chief, also with the, uh, the mayor, the city council, uh, the city manager, and other organizations with the attempt to provide support services to those who were traumatized by the event. So we saw uh, mental health groups that began to rally alongside us. I was privileged to host a large event in which we invited mental health professionals to come and present an open community forum Mm -hmm. and allow the community to vent and to share, but also to set forth some some form of strategy that would address uh, trauma within the community through support services, through mental health services. And then later, this moved us into discussions with the police department directly, in which I, along with a handful of us, were invited to go to the Sacramento Police Academy uh, with Police Chief Han and observe some of the training methodologies that are presented there to new candidates or those who are seeking to be police officers, and to discuss some specific means by which we could see training and development take place among our police officers. So Mm -hmm. just to have that open dialogue and be able to come together and sit in the same room and have some discussions that historically have not been held was phenomenal. That's a really big deal. And I, and that kind of leads into to something I want to talk about here before we get too much further, because I think it's important for, for everyone to understand just the extent of the conversations that are taking place, that we have uh, community organizations, we have the police department, we have people like you that are in dialogue and conversation saying, okay, 
let's forget about taking sides. Let's forget about casting, you know, trying to whose fault is all of this? Like, what can we do to move things forward? And that so much of that conversation is going on is really helpful. And it's important for us to know. Now, in saying that, I know that for all of us, for all three of us, I mean, we're going to get into aspects of this and we'll be sharing our own opinions and editorializing about this and that and the other thing. But we need to be really clear about how we're framing this discussion because too often when it when with difficult or controversial issues there will there are many who will say uh, to take this issue for example uh, you're either on the side of the Clark family and the African American community or you're on the side of of law enforcement you have to pick a side and just defend that side uh, and I think all three of us agree that that is the wrong way to think about this situation. Uh, it's not about taking sides, uh, and and it's important to know that showing support for one entity does not mean you're criticizing the other. Showing empathy for one side does not mean you lack empathy for the other. And we just need to make sure we're really clear on that before we move forward. Uh, Lance, what would you add to that? Yeah, a couple things. Um, uh and remind me, I just want to I want to recap in a moment here, just a, a meeting that I had in the faith community right after the shooting happened. I want to talk about that in a moment. Yep. But just answering your direct question, um, this this is what is so critical about Jesus and what I was highlighting uh, kind of towards the intro, which is that um, there is always a desire in order to move fast through life. People love to put in categories and put everybody in categories and demand sides. I believe that divisiveness is not of the heart of God especially when it comes to issues like this where you're caring for multiple people. Um, Bishop, you have a niece that's law enforcement that you love desperately. Um, you're, we Here at Bridgeway, we have tremendous uh, partnership with the, the law enforcement community. We have massive ties to the African-American community. You, Bishop, are African-American. Um, we have... Um, so many different people that we are loving and what we're trying to do is bring about safety and protection for all involved because this, no matter how you look at it, uh, there's pain involved and there's loss involved and we don't want more of that, whatever that is. Now, um, I love that you said, Pastor Brian, just the idea of um, when somebody says to have empathy for one is not to lack empathy for another. I think that's a brilliant way to say it as well. Also, I want to just add that to concede a point in the discussion of one view does not mean you ascribe to all of their view, nor that you disagree with all of another view, right? You're allowed, and, and, and this is what is so necessary for Christians today, is that we need to slice through the middle and say, actually, I agree with this point, not this one. I agree with this, not this, and not allow it to be demanded upon us that we're all or nothing, I think that's yep. frustrating. Um, one other thing, let me just highlight this because I know we need to move on. Um, but right after the shooting occurred, um, a number of pastors and Christian leaders got together in Stefan's neighborhood. Yeah. We actually went down to Genesis Church, which is uh, you know within a stone's throw of where the shooting occurred. And we all sat around and uh, a number of people got up and talked. Now... Um, I think that the concept of all of us getting together was super healthy. Yeah. Um, does it go smooth? I don't. I don't think it does go smooth. I, I think that when you're talking about something this emotionally charged, you're talking about something where some people are trying to catch up to speed. Some people are already frustrated. Some people are scared. Some people, you know, 
when you have that, it doesn't go smooth, but that's not the point. The point is not for it to go smooth. The point was that it happened right. and that we had people sharing. And I, and I remember um, one African-American leader just saying, in, in all of my hurt and frustration and anger, I just need you to understand I'm not anti-police. And, and there was just this beautiful match of saying, everyone just stop assuming things. Right. You know what I mean? A lot is going on behind the scenes. Everyone's going, well, nothing is happening. We do have a great relationship with Chief Han. Um, I've been around him a number of times, but I'm not even as close as Bishop is with him. Right. Uh, and And so, yeah, we see what's happening behind the scenes, and a lot is happening. I posted recently on my Facebook page that... This could only be about pain and loss, but it's not because so many people have been working tirelessly behind the scenes, stuff you'll never know, stuff you're not going to, we're not even allowed to share with you all the things that are going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But the amount of compassion and hard work is incredible. Yeah. And if I could just add to that, uh, one of the things that I appreciate even about the dialogue that we're having now is that, and I would probably push back just a little bit on whether or not we should have sides and if that is beneficial or not to the conversation. I think within the context of what I identify as the Christian culture is that it embraces the fact that a person may very well have a side. Mm -hmm. uh, another may view something very, very strongly that is completely opposed to what I believe or what I think but the reality is, is that the dialogue that can take place, whether I hold very strongly to one side and the other person holds to their side, that if we can come to the table mm -hmm. and have the conversation, I think is very positive and very powerful. I think that sometimes we, we attempt to, and I, and I don't see anything wrong with it, is that we try to take the road in the middle and I, I believe this and I believe this. I take a little bit of this. I take a little bit of that. But I may hold something very strongly in my mind. And this is where a lot of the community leaders that I'm dealing with and working with and serving with uh, many times confront the church is that it is a seemingly, it appears that if they believe something very strongly, that it is really not godly or it is not something that falls within the pale of dialogue. And I think on the opposite, I think courageous conversations embrace the diversity and the ability for a person to hold very strongly to their view. But then as I once heard my parents used to say, can we choose to agree? Can we agree to disagree? Yeah. And in that come to some solutions that what can we do together? What is yeah. it that we can serve and share together? I'm reminded of what uh, Dr. King once said in regards to that. He says, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Yeah. And, and that really is the, uh, what we seek to do even in this dialogue is that uh, there are, again, individuals who are very hurt, very traumatized in different ways. Uh, I heard uh, even one uh, regional pastor state recently that he does not hold to the view whatsoever 
that the community is traumatized. Either you obey the police or you don't. Now, this was an African-American pastor that stated this. And he says, I'm a veteran of of Vietnam, so if the light says red, it means stop. If it's green, it means go. And uh, he's going to get some flack for that. (laughs) I I mean, there's going to be some folks who are going to have a hard time because he is a prominent African-American pastor in the region. However, although I may disagree with him, I think that his point of being able to state how he feels, it is that is valid. Mm-hmm. That again, I don't have to agree with it for it to be valid. That is his opinion. That is his experience. It is not a, a monolithic response that falls into again what I may hold to. But we embrace that. It, we, it, in Christian culture, the culture of believers is that we can embrace the tension yeah. of difficult conversations yeah. because we know ultimately who provides the answer to us. Amen. Let I'll me let me clarify. Yeah. Um, a great clarification, by the way, Bishop. Um, so let me state what I mean by taking sides. Um, I believe that anyone can be ferociously focused on their view. What I'm saying is don't allow someone else to design your view. That's actually what I mean. Yeah. A preset side, I don't believe in that. Absolutely. I believe that if you have designed out your view— you hold to it ferociously. Yeah. And and so, but no, I don't believe you, you're allowed to adopt someone else's total view. You need to make your own decision. Absolutely. Well, and I think another part of this, this is just what really agitates me when it comes to discussion of a lot of challenging issues is as we try as, as a church, I try as just a human being to lean into intelligent conversation about difficult subjects is it is remarkable to me, just sort of all these little mental tools we have to be able to dismiss others' opinions and to sort of shove off hard conversations. So you might be, so so a person might say, oh, well, well, you're just anti-police. I I think that phrase, oh, well, you're just anti, is just a great way of avoiding a hard conversation. And, And that's where I think it would be so unfortunate for anybody to frame this into the, into such broad categories where like even that gentleman who, who shared that point of view, I mean, to just sort of cast that view aside and to not dig a little deeper to understand it, as much as any one of us may agree or disagree with it, I think would be unfortunate. And and I think it's important for, for our listeners to understand that I, I think when we catch ourselves wanting to dismiss a perspective as, oh, well, they're just this and that and kind of make these broad statements instead of seeking to understand, I don't think that's Christ-like. I don't think that's courageous. I think that that shows an element of fear and an element of kind of disengagement, which is not helpful in my opinion. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. No, and, and I think that... You bring that out very well because I may not necessarily agree with the methods of Black Lives Matter and some of the other organizations that are much more vocal and demonstrative in their protests. However, I understand. I understand. It's not a complete dismissal of everything that they stand for, right? Yes. So let's get into this a little bit further. And I I just want to talk for a minute about kind of your – each of – the two of you, and then I'll share my own kind of reaction to first hearing the news. Now, I know you were involved in some conversations, so you sort of, I mean, well, maybe both of you were, had a sense of kind of what was coming and what was going to happen. Can you just share a little bit about your own reaction to the news that uh, the officers involved in the shooting were not going to be charged? Maybe, uh, Lance, why don't we start with you, and then we'll go to you, uh, Bishop. Yeah, like Bishop, I I knew it was coming. Uh, I knew this was coming from probably day one. Uh, and a lot of the conversations behind only confirmed yeah. each and everything we knew. So I, I did not know the exact day 
Um, and so uh, when it came down, I, I think I had already processed all this stuff a long time ago. It, it, so it didn't really move me. I think I had to process that, you know, like I said, the first week. Um, what was my reaction to it the first time I heard it? Um, uh, honestly, I, I, I do not believe, um, per se that criminalization, um, or a bringing criminal charges is the right response, um, to those officers. Um, do I think that it was a, uh, a um, justifiable shooting um, in one way, yes, in one way, no. And, and so I'm not, I'm not saying that, that things were done right. I'm not saying that Stefan Clark shouldn't be alive today. He should be. Um, and we got to pray that that doesn't happen again. I don't know if criminalization necessarily was a solution. So I don't think it changed things one way or another for me. It was just another factor to the sadness and the drama of what was happening. Yeah. How about you, Bishop? I would uh, concur. Th- I, I have to say, in hearing the report that the DA gave, and I did watch the entire presentation, I was somewhat disappointed, and no, in fact, quite disappointed that uh, it was presented as though, and it was stated over the media, that she presented it as though it was a trial. And there are some legal analysts that suggest that she needed to do that. Uh, I'm not sure of all the ins and outs of that. I'm just saying that I felt that, along with others in the community, that it was disrespectful of some of the things that she brought out in regards to the text messages, his relationship with his uh, fiance. Uh, the way that it was done, I, I think, could have been handled much differently. If she wanted to make her decision and wanted to present uh, just solely based upon the events of the shooting itself that night, that would have not been a surprise mm-hmm. at, at all. Uh, there, sadly, it is believed that that is the track record mm-hmm. of, the, of the DA in relationship to these types of shootings. However... That set aside, I was disappointed uh, that how there was somewhat uh, disregard for the family and for the community to hear some of the information that was presented in her report. Also, uh, much to my frustration, it has been confirmed that she waited uh, approximately about within the two hours or an hour prior to making her announcement to meet with the family. Mm -hmm. I think that it would have been much... uh, Although it would have been difficult, it would have been a hard conversation to wait within an hour or two hours to have that heavy, dramatic conversation is saddening to me. And uh, again, I just think all of this could have been handled much, much differently than the way that it did. But uh, it's happened, and the community is uh, is responding or reacting, whichever the case may be. Yeah. I, I certainly agree with you in terms of the the sharing of the the personal details. That's that's pretty hard to defend in my in my opinion. Um, and then certainly similarly waiting so long. I mean, certainly opportunities were there to speak with the family. I'm obviously not in in. I don't know the decision making process, and I will I will admit my ignorance. But it seems like opportunities would have been there and. I think, you know, reading about, I mean, like you guys, I I sort of knew, I just based on the track record knew this was coming and just the whole, the whole thing, it's not hard to see why this is reopening wounds in our 
community because whether you think criminalization is the answer or not, the whole situation is just incredibly sad. It's sad for everybody. It's sad for police officers. It's sad for the the Clark family. It's sad for uh, those who have seen this happen in our community time and time again. And you see the anger and the sadness for those for whom this is not just something they observe from the outside. And, you know, like, I'll just be honest, I'm observing from the outside saying, gosh, this is sad. This isn't right. Something's got to change. For those for whom this is just part of their lives, how can you not sympathize with the sadness and the anger and, and everything else that's that's going on with all of that? So the whole situation is just incredibly sad for our community, and it just leaves you asking, okay, what do we do? How do we how do we make this better? So or how do, how do we keep these sorts of things from happening again? Uh, so so with that, uh, you've spoken to this already a little bit, uh, Pastor Parnell, but can you maybe speak to? What are the conversations going on in our community now or that have gone on in our community in the last month or two just to try to help address what's going on, address these types of challenges, address these sorts of incidents, and help prevent them in the future? What conversations are you seeing? Sure. Uh, as mentioned, I've, I've had an opportunity to sit with uh, those from the law enforcement agencies and those within the uh, the city, city officials, and it's noted that despite all of these challenges that have taken place, there is some things that are that's happening that is actually very positive. For instance, it was reported that homicides declined for the third year in a row, and for the first time in at least 35 years, there were no murder victims under the age of 18. And uh, this is significant uh, to, to hear those type of uh, statistics and report outs. Yeah. But I, I suggest that this has happened because of the partnerships that have de- that are developing and that have developed over the last uh, couple of years, even prior to the shooting, and more intensified after the shooting that have brought about some of these positive changes. Uh, the fact that the community is meeting with officers, in fact, part of the training that many of the police officers now are receiving is going into the community and they're doing, uh, whereas we would do ride-alongs with the police, they're coming in doing uh, community alongs. They're mm, actually coming cool. alongside leaders within the community and particularly communities that some would argue are over-policed, uh, building mm-hmm. those relationships, yeah. uh, t- those one-on-ones. This has helped. This mm-hmm. is continuing to be a process. It's an ongoing process. Uh, Police Chief Han has now ordered and requested that the uh, officers that are seeking to be promoted within the department are required to do reading that sensitizes them to specific communities, such as the African-American community. One of the readings that he has them uh, observing right now, a reading, is a book entitled uh, Post-Traumatic Slavery Syndrome, hmm. written by Dr. Joy DeGruy, who is a resident here in Sacramento. and She's been coming alongside the police department again to bring about some understanding of these deeper conversations that many of these folks may not be aware of. Now, the, one of the things that's unique about the police department is that they do come in with some type of education, uh, a mm-hmm. little bit more so than even the requirements required for the sheriff's department. Mm. But the thing that is being added alongside the classroom knowledge is the street knowledge, being able mm-hmm. to, again, go into the community, have these conversations, walk amongst the people, and build trust, build relationship. 
So this has been helpful. Yeah. Also, the police uh, department's uh, shift in policy regarding the foot pursuit, that's mm-hmm. significant. Yeah. Uh, the adjustments that are being made there, the use of uh, the cameras that yeah. the officers wear. Now the, all of the uh, police officers have been outfitted with those cameras. Mm-hmm. Again, this is significant change within our community. I think what keeps being brought forth over and over again is that although the emphasis has been on transparency, and that is appreciated, mm-hmm. the emphasis now is how do we build in accountability? Yeah. Not merely transparency. You can be transparent all day, but how do we hold one another accountable so that we would not see the type of tragedies we've seen with the Clark shooting? Now, would you say that we're kind of at the beginning of the process of asking the accountability question? Because I agree with you. I think certainly there's value in transparency, but if the transparency is showing you bad things, uh, on some level, transparency is not enough, right? And I'm not implying transparency is showing good or bad. I'm just saying not enough. Are we just at the beginning, kind of from a community perspective, of asking the accountability question, or has there been some progress made, or are there a lot of, I would imagine there are a lot of different opinions from different ones within the community on that question? I I would argue we're at the beginning. There's got to be more, and I I think there, it has to be pushed now into policy development. What can be put out that would hold officers accountable? Yeah so that, uh, again, that there's a trust relationship that is built. So uh, I think that's where we've got to push into more. We've got to move into what are the policies, the overarching policies that can govern these type of discussions. Yeah. And and certainly the the release of this ruling seems, I mean, certainly has brought discussions about legislation and accountability back into the public consciousness in a a significant way. Lance, let's go to you for a second. Can you maybe take us into the next part of the conversation in talking about this question of legislation, accountability? Can you give us sort of a brief history of the last year, year and a half, and some some bills that have been proposed by different organizations and what they propose in terms of how to address these uh, issues of violence in our community? Yeah, so um, here's a here's a simple kind of a Wikipedia version, right? I mean, that's not where we got it, but I'm just saying it sounds <laughs> right. like that. Um, uh, the last law on the books for use of police force was written in 1872. That's a long, long time ago. Little outdated. Uh, and little outdated, so it needs to be adjusted. So last year, uh, AB 931 was presented by... Um, a woman with the last name of Weber. Uh, there was multiple people that wrote in on it, but one person kind of carries it forward. Um, AB 931 was basically taking the idea from deadly force standard from it, you can use it when it's reasonable to it has to be necessary, right? So that, that was the big change. Um, uh, at the end of that, before it was going to be signed off on, there was a, a rise up of... Um, opposition predominantly from the law enforcement community that said, whoa, 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 if you do that, that's going to needlessly put our officers in danger. It was shut down. This time, AB 392 is almost a repeat of that exact same law saying, okay, let's try it again, maybe doing some minor tweaks. Now, so AB 392 is really the one that is saying, listen, we need to hold them accountable more you can't just use lethal force when you think it's reasonable. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you have to have some extreme cases to where it is necessary. All other options have been exhausted. Then you can use reasonable force. Now, those are key words right there. I think Huge. it's important to point out the reasonable versus necessary. That's the key difference. That's in the key. Current policy versus what's being proposed. Yes. Yeah, so as it, sta- as it stands right now, the idea is that is it reasonable to use lethal force? In other words, if there is a threat going on or there is a containment or there is a possibility of a bunch of things going wrong, it is the police's job to assess it and figure out what's the most reasonable move here. And if I need to shoot and kill, that's what I need to do. So it's all on them to be able to say what is best for the scenario. The shift then is saying, no, you don't get to make that determination at all. You actually go through a process by which you exhaust every option to say, I tried this, I tried this. There is no other option and it is necessary that I'm going to die, my partner's going to die, or someone in the community is going to die from their direct assault. Therefore, I'm going to use lethal force and I'm going to take them out. Now, once again, I think that when we look at these things, there is the theoretical view of what would it say, and then there's the practical implementation of it, and then there is the what is even realistic for a human being, right? Yeah. I mean, you can write whatever you want on paper. It's just I, that doesn't mean you can always do that. Yeah. Um, now, in response to that, another bill, a Senate bill, Senate Bill 230 or SB 230, uh, was was brought up by a woman with the last name Caballero, and that is supported by Protect California, a police nonprofit group um, that that focuses less on the criminalization of saying not holding the police accountable and saying if you don't do it right, we're going to put you in jail. That it would focus on the de-escalation training, uh, uh, concerns about training in mental health. It's, it's much more about, hey, how do we make policing better um, as opposed to accountability? And I think that that's the big split right there, right? So what changes does SB 230 propose in terms of accountability for police officers? I'm not seeing a lot of accountability changes. Right, okay. I mean, yes. that's, the, that's the essence, right? right? So, so the big split there is accountability. Right. Um, one is saying there's, you know, hey, we're going to do the accountability thing and we can hold you criminally negligent. If you if you do not. Um, And so that's really where we're at an impasse. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Parnell, what do you make of these different bills? And uh, and even I'd be curious to know what, if anything, are you hearing in the community about uh, support or opposition to to either of these bills? And and maybe what what do you personally think of them (laughs) to the extent that you want to share, of course? Yes. Uh, You know, the the pushback on the bills that have been proposed by Dr. Shirley Weber and Kevin McCartney uh, is that it comes off as being punitive versus a real shift or a real change of uh, aiding the process. And so I'm not sure that I can sense that. I think that if I asked someone to be accountable, it's not necessarily being punitive, but it is Mm -hmm. stating that there are consequences if it is found within that accountability that you're not following through with what you know with what has been agreed right. so I think that I'm not sure that I'm fully invested uh, into uh, the bill that has been presented by Weber and McCarty I think that there has to be as pastor Lance has just stated there has to be some questions that have been asked or need to be asked mm-hmm. what's reality it's one thing to see it on paper but what is the reality how do people 
react? How fast do I have to react if I'm put into a very stressful situation, which our officers daily yep. are experiencing that? I mean, merely just putting on their uniform and walking out the door, they're experiencing the stress of that. So I, I know that our mayor, or the mayor of Sacramento, has gone on record to state that he favors the Weber-McCartney bill. Yeah, uh, He's stated that, but I think when he stated it, it was somewhat under some duress. <laughs> it sounded like you know, it was When he made duress. mention of that. So I think yeah. that uh, that it, it's good that someone is taking a, a stand on it. But I, I agree with the police association that there has to be further examination of what exactly does this bill entail and what are the ramifications of it. Right. Certainly, it would seem that some clarity is, is necessary. It's as you, But as you mentioned, uh, the mayor, you know, we're not totally clear on what the situation was, but he has come out in support of it. Sacramento Bee editorial board wrote an editorial in support of it. Uh, and I actually read a pretty interesting article. Uh, I was just pulling it up here by a gentleman. This was in the Sacramento Bee back in, in August of 2018. A gentleman who was a former police chief in Seattle, where they enacted a lot of the policies that AB 382 is seeking to uh, implement. And he said it worked. He said there was a decrease in uh, violence by police officers to civilians. There was a decrease in violence from civilian to police officers. And it really was effective. And I think that if we're going to take sort of a data-driven look at does this work, I think that's really important to be able to see what's happening around the country as Police, uh, police departments are implementing these procedures and governments are implementing accountability. Uh, because a question that I would ask, and, and I, I'm going to do what Lance makes fun of me for all the time, which is prefacing my statements with all these disclaimers. Shocker. 100% acknowledge that our police officers have to make split-second de- decisions that I would not want to make. They have my full and complete respect for that. I have not been in their position, and and that is a big reason why I'm not super gung-ho for massive, massive accountability. I, I thank police officers when I see them. I, I have extraordinary respect for what they go through. My question would be, this is happening a lot, and it needs to stop. And we're all for training. I think that's great. What SB 230 is 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 asking for in terms of training is seems like a positive step. But a question has to be asked, what sort of accountability, not just training, because training without accountability helps, but I don't think it does enough. What sort of accountability would you be in favor of? And maybe that's where some dialogue needs to happen, where we need to take off, we need to take off the table these, these massive you know, punitive measures that don't take into account the extraordinary challenges our law enforcement officers yes. face. But we also, in my opinion, need to take off the table uh, ideas that only have some training, but don't put some accountability in place to say, hey, we need to really take this seriously because people are dying and this is a real problem. Uh, so I think yeah. there's got to be some measure of, of both. What would you say to that? Well, yes, absolutely. Because I, I think when we speak of accountability, de-escalation and the implementation of de-escalation and tools of de-escalation, I think, is a way of holding people accountable. Uh, I think of this even in a recent uh, scenario in which my son was involved. He was stopped by the uh, police department, by the Rancho Cordova Police Department, and uh, his tags had expired, so mm-hmm. they were pulling him over. Well, my son uh, reacted as he was being stopped. They could see him in the car 
putting his hands up and and kind of hitting the dashboard because he was frustrated. Mm -hmm. He was frustrated that he got stopped by the police. He's he's 21 years old, so he's frustrated. They could tell he was frustrated. He was crying and and so forth. What was significant was that the officers sought to de-escalate the situation by approaching the car very carefully with him. They observed that he was upset and they talked him down. They, mm. they de-escalated the situation in such a way that they were able to recognize that his, uh, in essence, his god sister uh, was one of their officers. Mm-hmm. They recognized the family and so forth, and they were able to talk it and give him a warning and send him on his way. That could have turned out into a very ugly situation. But yeah. the fact that these particular officers had gone through some training yeah. that sensitized them to what was happening at the moment enable that to be a very positive outcome. I think that's where uh, the discussion of the, the policies, the legislative policies that are being proposed, how can those be written in that requires training yeah. and holds officers accountable to the training that they supposedly have received? Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, Lance, would be curious to hear from you. I mean, what, what role, if any, uh, in your opinion, does accountability uh well, let's say both training and accountability have have to play in in how we should move forward. Uh, Brian, I have no opinion. All right, no, that's as, not you, true. as usual. <laughs> in case you don't know this, well, probably all three of us have an opinion about everything. Everything, yes, everything. praise the Lord, <laughs> everything. Okay, so uh, l- let me walk through this, and it'll be a little bit messy. So, um, but I'm not on the record. <laughs> oh, I am. Um, I think there's another way. I think that I want to talk about the difference between. Firing officers and prosecuting officers. Um, I believe that there needs to be a tiered system so that with gross negligence, we can have prosecution. That means you are outside the bounds of being a police officer. Just the fact that you uh, have been given a badge and given a gun, you don't get to do whatever you want to do. Let's say uh, someone goes rogue. That That is absolutely prosecutable. If you are within the bounds of being a police officer... But you have um, an unjustified shooting. You have a, wow, that you did your job poorly. That needs to lead to a firing for accountability, right? Your job is to keep people safe and put away bad guys. Killing people unnecessarily should remove you from your job, right? Like that would be a fireable offense, in my opinion. Wow, you're not good at this. You should probably not do this for a living. Now, the problem that I have is that's not internally being handled, is if it was being internally handled, I think we wouldn't have this problem. I think that if the department, and I mean by the department, the police law enforcement community, to be able to say, listen, I understand you did everything within the law. I just don't think you're very good at this. I'm going to let you go. Uh, well, that's going to cause them to second guess them. Well, okay, hold on. You're right. However, some people need to second guess themselves. Because it's just not working, yeah. and 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 so I think that there can be a, there there needs to be accountability for people going rogue. If you right. see a be, a pattern or a behavior that needs to be prosecutable, because they're no longer officer, they're not mm-hmm. acting as officers anymore. They're acting as themselves, mm-hmm. and you go, okay, I'm going to put you away. Mm-hmm. But if I'm acting as an officer, I'm just not good at what I do. I think those people need to be let go. Now, um, here's the thing: this is the balance. Police officers do dangerous work, right? right? They need to be protected. No one else is doing the dangerous work. Everyone wants to shout at them. They're doing a job. Right. You have to remember, it's not like people are just running and attacking them in their homes. They're out there helping other people. 
Mm-hmm. All they do is help, 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 and then all of a sudden something goes bad, and everyone goes, you're the bad guy. That's not not good. They're not out there on their own. They're out there for us. Therefore, we need to give them freedom to do their job well. Second-guessing does kill people, right? Usually them or their partners. Police are being confronted with weapons a lot. It's not like they're the only ones with guns. They're getting assaulted. The in, From 2016 to 2017, according to the stat sheet, uh, gun... Uh, excuse me, assaults on police increased by 837 incidents from 2016 to 2017. Not it went to 837, 837 increased. And that's in what jurisdiction? State, national? That's state, California. Um, Firearm attacks on police alone increased 25%. Okay, so people are shooting at cops. Now, it's not like they're the ones just running around with guns and no one has guns and they're shooting unarmed people. Does that happen? Yes, it does. Um, there were allegedly 100 police uh, killings in 2018, meaning that the officers killed somebody more, in the line of duty. More in the state of California than anywhere else in the country by actually by a lot. Other, there are more people here, but I don't know what it is per yes. capita, but the total number is more. Right. And so here's the thing. We are dealing with human beings. We're dealing with human beings on the law enforcement side, and we're dealing with human beings on the other side. Everybody wants to try to create a system for a RoboCop. There is no RoboCop. There's scared people on all sides. You have Stefan is scared out of his mind. You have the officers. Everyone immediately went, oh, it must be a race thing. Hold on. Do we remember that one of the officers was black and one of the officers was white? Um, it's not purely a race thing. It's a human thing. There was panic and fear and, and everybody was reacting. So here's my point. This is where I'm going to get to the second half. Okay. The first part was about accountability. Second part is about training. Okay. I believe that split second challenges, split second decisions are born out of instinct. Instinct is what's built in, in the first place, your values, your fears, That's why training is of utmost importance. Of all people who need the most extensive training in working with different groups, it's the police, right? Because if there's not an instinctual compassion, if there's not an instinctual, I de-escalate. There's not an instinctual, these are my people. It's going to go wrong. I think there needs to be a training of, of allowing them to be the most malleable, adjustable, great People working with other people. Why? Because they can de-escalate a tremendous amount of situations. Um, one of the things that's important to, to realize is that uh, a civil grand jury report showed that mental illness factors into nearly half of all police shootings. Yeah. If there's not an awareness of what mental illness signs are, you're going to assume it's simply aggression. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Well, if you're not going to understand that there's a a traumatic element in a community, you're not going to realize you're stepping on triggers. Right. If you don't realize, you know what I'm saying? And so when they're walking in such a tense environment, they need to become the experts in working with people. And I think that will change their instincts that will embolden them to walk more confidently. I think they will be safer. I think everybody will be safer. Um, And I'll just say this, this last thing. Um, going through the training to be a concealed carry person myself mm-hmm. in that training with weapons, 
um, we have to watch this this video, and I think it's just a penalty, right? <laughs> that you have to watch a dumb video for a really, really long time. In the video, here's what you're told if you carry a concealed weapon. If you ever draw your weapon, you will go to jail. That's it. You're going to jail. Now, are you going to get out is the second question. And unless you can prove that that not only did that other person, were they able to kill you, but they had the clear intention to kill you, you can't do that. You're not getting out of jail. If you cannot prove that, you're never allowed to draw your weapon and shoot. You're never allowed to use lethal force. Okay, now that's just for me. Yeah. That's like average dude that has that. Um, I think that there's that is accountability. And I think that it's helpful. Now, do I have to always carry my weapon? No, I do not. Police officers do have to carry it every day. So they're constantly put in that position. A quick clarification, then I want to go to Pastor Parnell to get his his read on, on what you just said. So you, you share about the concealed carry uh, laws and restrictions. Connect that to what the standards should be for police officers, because I'm I'm a little fuzzy on what you're what you're suggesting in terms of police officers and their weapons and what the the rules should be there. Yeah, I'm saying there needs to be accountability. I'm saying that I have accountability on me as an average citizen in carrying a weapon, and I think there needs to be accountability with anyone carrying a weapon. Saying if I blow this, it's going to come back badly on me. The consequences are and significant. me opting to go into a job that consistently has weapon usage means that I'm always under the possibility of losing my job quite a bit. Yeah. That's got it. Okay. Pastor Parnell, your thoughts. No, I I absolutely agree. I'm I'm hearing over and again that it's holding accountability uh, components to each and everyone involved in the police department, holding them accountable based upon the training that is provided. And the, the training, I think that part falls upon the community in regards to the the city and the other resources that are necessary to fund that yeah. and to provide that. I think once it is provided, then we can begin to hold people accountable for what they know mm-hmm. and what right. they've been trained in. So I, I fully agree with that. And I think that it has to be said that uh, I myself could not be more proud of the Sacramento Police Department, particularly in law enforcement in general, but particularly under the leadership of Chief Daniel Hahn, I'm proud of the fact that despite the criticism, very direct criticism, and uh, at times I would even go as far as to say the insults and the threats that they have endured, mm-hmm. they have maintained professionalism and a sense of defending the First Amendment and protecting our community. So I, I am proud of that fact. I Amen. think that there is an openness to hearing the community, because mm-hmm. here's something that Chief Han said uh, early on, and again, this was when he was first brought into his role. He says, listen, it's not the police or law enforcement and the community. He says, yeah. people forget we are the community. Right. Yeah. So I think that that's where we're beginning to see, again, some growth and some development. And so I'm, I'm grateful for uh, the, the law enforcement, what they're doing, and openness to the dialogue and the discussion. There's still much work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm grateful for the community leaders that have taken this on to hit the forefront uh, even leaders such as uh, Tanya Faison of Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Again, she and I may see very differently on the approach 
but I am grateful for the fact that she has given her life to seeing justice take place within our community. Others, such as Betty Williams of the NAACP, who has led great efforts of supporting the family and supporting uh, our community, and Cassandra Jennings of the Greater Sacramento Urban League. Mm -hmm. Others I can mention, but people who are just really standing at the forefront to see accountability and change, not just transparency. Right. So as we start to to wrap here, believe it or not, it's already been an hour. I want to just talk for a little bit. I would love to hear from from both of you on this one. Is kind of a, a multi part question here. Let let we're we're Christians. We're pastors. We're 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 obviously deeply invested in the the faith community here in in the region. How can the so here are my questions? How can the faith community be a part of promoting continued healing and unity in our community? But then number two, what do we need to be careful to avoid? Like what sorts of things can we do that would potentially hijack the process of helping move forward with all of these things we're describing, training, transparency, accountability, unity. So, so what can we do and then what do we need to be careful to avoid? Whoever wants to go first, go ahead. I'll, I'll jump in that. I, I would say what needs to be avoided is silence. We have to avoid being silent. We have to avoid stepping back because of the thought that is too controversial or too provocative. Yeah. Uh, it is what it is, yeah. and it requires, as been mentioned earlier in our conversation, an approach that is different than the narratives that are out there. With all respect to the narratives, I appreciate them, but we bring as believers the Christian culture, which isn't in and itself is a culture. Yeah. It is a culture that is driven, it is founded upon unconditional love. It is founded upon the reality that there is transformation of heart that can take place. So I, I think that we have to not be silent, but we have to also in our being vocal and being clear and being present, just yeah. being at the table, being in the room, yeah. Being in places outside of the four walls of the church, it puts us into a very unique position to be a prophetic voice that speaks to, I believe, uh, a city, a yeah. community, a nation, even a world that, uh, contrary to public opinion and people in the church, they do want to hear uh, what the church has to say. There is a light yeah. that's, that pierces the darkness that surrounds these conversations. So I, I'm encouraged by that. I think that we we indeed bring a, a voice of reconciliation and a voice of transformation that has to take place. Yeah, that's good. Pastor Lance, how about you? I would say that what we need to do is have humility. There's something you cannot assume. There, there's a lot of stuff that we're just not thinking about. And to walk around um, and say, we know everything that's going on, I, I just don't think that's appropriate. Um, that is going to require listening and dialogue. Um, what we must avoid is promoting fear. Um, I think more fear is going to make everything worse. I, I think that when everyone's afraid, bad things happen. And so whatever we're doing, if we're using insightful language or inflammatory speech or trying to stir people up needlessly. Now, if people need to be stirred needfully, praise God. Yeah. Right. Once again, yep. there, there's an element uh, where you go, you know what? This actually needs to be stand up again. You know, whatever it is. Boom. I'm all in. Right. Let's do that. 
but when there is simple fear mongering, yeah, uh, that I do not believe is the spirit of God. Yeah, and I think with that kind of broad demonization as well that creates fear doesn't help right that creates fear now i think that's different than naming problems i think you can oh you got to name the problems and say okay (laughs) uh unarmed black men are being shot that is a problem that's unacceptable and that is and 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 it is in no way contradicting any sort of pro-police stance to say that unarmed black men getting shot is a huge problem at the same time, it's important to it's important to say. I think for 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 a variety of perspectives represented here, that so many of us just have no idea what it's like. No. I don't know what it's like to live in Stefan Clark's neighborhood. Nope. I don't know what it's like to be the police officer who's responding to that call. I, I don't, don't know what it's like. Yeah. And a lot of us don't know what it's like. Yeah. And I think in a lot in these situations, we tend to gravitate towards different different individuals who are maybe involved in a tough situation and maybe naturally empathize with them more. But I think it's important for us to, to, to recognize, gosh, there is so much going on here that is beyond our experience. Yes. Uh, and there needs to, to with that, uh, we can seek justice. We can seek imp- community empowerment. We can seek, uh, you know, police reform that, 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 that kind of all sides can come to the table and agree on. Um, but I think for, for us on the outside, there has to be some measure of humility Absolutely. that we bring well, to the I, conversation. We want the right answers. We don't just want right. answers. Yeah, no, that's good. We want the right answers. And so if we come in strong against injustice and we're pushing for a wrong answer, yeah. that's not helpful. Yeah. No. You're you're absolutely right about that. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, your time today for discussing this, uh, I mean, obviously tragic situation in our community. But uh, as Christ followers, we can certainly be people um, who with hope and people who believe that uh, we can move forward and that God can redeem anything uh, to create just a better community and to create sort of greater understanding within our community. We hope that this conversation was helpful and we encourage you to dialogue with others about uh, your own thoughts and your own feelings and even just wrestle with the question of how uh, can followers of Jesus be a, be a light uh, in our community in the midst of all of this. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Engaging Culture. Thank you for listening to Engaging Culture, a podcast by Bridgeway Christian Church. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Music is used under the Creative Commons license and is provided by Dexter Britton.